Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable for all and edifying for most and equipping for those who are pastors or teachers working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary and Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Ken Shank. Ken is a relatively frequent guest here on the show. Uh, He is a vice president for enrollment and innovation at Houghton College in upstate New York and a, a former teacher and colleague and longtime friend and still friend of mine. Love having Ken on the show. He's the author of oh, well over a dozen books, so you can find him on Amazon and uh, follow him on uh, you know, Twitter and his website and stuff like that. He's got tons of content out there, so you def- definitely want to check out Ken's stuff if you haven't already. Our text this week is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 through 31. 1 Corinthians 7, 29 through 31. A short passage, but kind of an anchor text to look at the whole of chapter 7, which we uh, do and, well, we traipse all over the the New Testament as is our custom. So now make sure to subscribe if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass the show along to others so that they may benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Ken. Awesome. Will you uh, go ahead and read the passage, 1 Corinthians 7, 29 through 31, and then I'll say a prayer, and then we'll have a discussion. Verse 29. And this I say, brothers and sisters, the time is having been cut short, so the rest, that also the ones who have wives should be as those not having, and the ones weeping as not weeping, and the ones rejoicing as not rejoicing, and the ones buying as not possessing, and the ones using the world as not using, for the form of this world is passing away. Oh, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this day uh, which you have made. Grant us the grace to rejoice and be glad in it. And we thank you for this hour, this moment, this time, this season, this, this kairos, that is this hour to which we have been led uh, to study your word together. Father, I am very grateful uh, that I still get to dig in to the scriptures uh, with my beloved teacher um, from years ago and my boss and now my colleague. (laughs) What a joy. Uh, to get to do this. So I'm very grateful. And so we ask, Lord, that you would guide us, that the thoughts that we share and the insights that we offer, such as they are, uh, would be blessed beyond measure, that by your spirit, what we have to share with one another would, for our listeners, bear fruit beyond what we could ourselves produce. And this happens only by the power of your Holy Spirit as the very power of your word. So we pray this in the name of your incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And now your student. 
<laughs> well, we'll see. So, man, I mean, so I, I mentioned before that that uh, that we we can look at the whole chapter uh, eventually if we like, maybe in the second section. But sure. I think there's actually already, in my view, a ton just in these three verses, and a whole bunch of issues that it raises. So let's just uh, zoom in close on these couple verses uh, at first. What what jumps out at you today as you as you look at this? Well, um, I think imminent expectation is um, orthodox, um, or or is is orthopraxic, <laughs> if that's a word. That that um, even though Paul is writing this two thousand years ago, our need to be mindful of Christ's imminent return uh, has not changed. Uh, I suppose so. The first uh, maybe I'm jumping into application, but it's okay. I mean, it's this little bit here is in the context of where he's doing application, right? This is a very applicational chapter with this little piece of eschatology stuck in there. You know, that's the framework of everything, I guess, but imminent expectation. That the time is, well, he says this in Romans, we are closer uh, than, yeah. than when we first began. And of course, that's always the exact passage that came to mind. Yeah. Chapter 15, is it? Yeah. We are closer to our salvation. Yeah. The the day of salvation is closer now than than when we first believed. Ah, okay. Right? Yes. uh, Ah, it's all the way in 13. Oh, 13 verse 11. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, again, in a very applicational context. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Well, man, it's been the fourth watch for a long time, if Paul can say that 2,000 years ago. It's a, this is a deep, a deep, deep problem in New, Ter- New Testament interpretation that you can't sure. get rid of, right? Because yeah. h- how do you adopt this attitude? How is this not just straightforwardly an error? and of course we're not the first to as you say note that i think even rhymerus in the 1700s might have uh said something along along those lines well heck second peter seems to be dealing with the problem yeah yeah sure (laughs) Um, well a day is not the same it's like a thousand years it's only been two days um yeah (laughs) and of course there have been there have been um clever you know clever uh clever and and unintentional coping strategies. Um, ah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, although I, I do think N.T. Wright uh, believes in the literal second coming of Christ, I think. I mean, he he's known for taking some of that language and, for example, Mark 13 and such, and applying it to uh, Jesus going on the clouds with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, finding most of much of that eschatological imagery in the Gospels is relating to the destruction of the temple. Yeah, I think that that actually is a valid coping strategy, but can't be like a lot of hermeneutical or a lot of, I like coping strategies, a great term. Probably learned it from you because I use that all the time too. Like all coping strategies, they need to be, they're a strategy. So they need to be applied. Then you have to have the tactical control of exegesis step by step. Well, does it work here? You know, it's, it's like the whole faith of Christ, faith in Christ debate. It's like, well, having having on hand an alternative genitive form so that some passages seem to work, to but if you just apply it to every single case, you're gonna run roughshod over some 
some sticky texts. And I, and I don't think this one can be so easily dispatched the way that some of the material from the gospel seems to be much more Palestine-centric in its concern. I, I think this seems to be a text because of precisely because of the way he applies it. Seems to be talking about the end of time as we know it, right? <laughs> like, so. I was trying to remember what Ben Witherington does here. Uh, and I think what he does is he, uh, there's a phrase here in chapter seven, this present crisis. And so he takes some of the imagery of this chapter in relation to some crisis going on in the first century. I've always kind of felt like that was a cop out. Uh, please uh, forgive me, Ben. Kind of like, a, isn't that a little convenient? <laughs> uh, but um, uh, but it, it is an example of of an attempt to reinterpret the passage, perhaps to make it a little smoother, or maybe that's the right interpretation. And I'm just a cynical old man. It's not absolutely implausible. I just think it, the the burden of proof lies heavily on those who wish to sort of supply reference, uh, referent, a reference that's being made to something that's not here on the page. You know. Well, let's play with this word and see if that can help us not to solve it, but at least to set the parameters of interpretation. In verse 29. Can I say um, one more thing? Oh, um, yeah, go ahead. I was, uh, and it'd be interesting to know what um, Chris Bounds thinks about this. I, um, I feel like when I grew up, an unintended coping strategy was hmm. to focus on you die, you go to heaven or hell. I mean, we, it's not that we did. It makes it immediate. It's not that we didn't believe in the second coming. Of course, we believe in the second coming. In fact, we watched all those movies about, you know, end times, the kind of Hal Lindsey, uh, which were, was the, Tim, for those who are young, the Tim LaHaye, you may not even know that if you're really young. I do, I do, yeah. But um, the, 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 the Tim LaHaye kind of second coming movies, tribulation, we believed in all that. But really, in terms of our operational eschatology, we pretty much operated with you die and you go to heaven or hell. And in that way, you're not focused on the second coming, but on we're all going to grow old. We're all going to die. You know, oh yeah, we believe Jesus is coming back. So that's kind of a, and even rhetorically, the, the, the final eschatology sort of functions rhetorically, at least to, again, not to claim that we didn't believe in it, but, but uh, rhetorically it functioned to kind of give a, some punch to the personal eschatology of your own death. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it uh, added some, some fireworks to one's own sort of when, when, when you've sacrificed this Protestants have the imagery of purgatory and, you know, they'll kind of as a sort of intermediate state to kind of spook you person at, for individual reasons, right. You have to, which coheres perfectly with the last judgment, right? You know, there's a two-step sequence, right? So if you're going to drop the two-step sequence, well, you you got to bring those two together, the the big picture at the end, and then my personal destiny, uh, and how do we bring those together? And actually, they never really fit perfectly together, but, you know, basically it's just, you know, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd go, right, is the question. And, but that doesn't, that's actually kind of abstract, actually. So all the Tim LaHaye stuff gives, gives it flesh, gives it a narrative, Ups you know, right. And whereas, I mean, again, like I say, Dante and the description of purgatory gives you narrative flesh. It's not abstract. It's very clear. Like, oh, you're going to spend centuries wow. like working through all of your mistakes. Right. So if you take that out of the equation, it's kind of an abstract question. Where do I stand uh, when I die? Doesn't have a lot of narrative flesh to it, which is actually interestingly relevant, I think, to Paul for whom I think his own personal death, at least 
sort of had this connection to the big apocalyptic thing that was to come in his mind. He doesn't seem to have a lot of narrative detail other than first Thessalonians a little bit in first Corinthians 15. There's not a ton of narrative detail. It's this big end that's coming. I'm not saying he didn't have it in his head. He just doesn't give it to us much in his letters. And even here it's, it's pretty abstract. The time again, I don't know how to best translate this word. It has been used up or (laughs) has been shortened has been. Now, I, I mean, in my teaching um, over the years, I've argued, I don't know, successfully or not, that Paul's narrative was flipped from mine growing up. I grew up, uh, you, if you died tonight, would you have the assurance of going to heaven? You know, kind of, we die, we go to heaven or hell, and oh, oh yeah, there's a second coming when Jesus comes back. You yeah, know, way, he's definitely got I that flipped, Paul, right? Uh, in fact, the, I've argued that the reason for First Thessalonians is that he's so focused on the second coming that he didn't fully un- explain the resurrection to them. Yeah, right. And right. so they're like, oh, Uncle Bob, he was so looking forward to Jesus coming back, but now right. he's dead. And Paul's like, oh, no, 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 Uncle Bob's going to be part yeah, of Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, he's, he's the first in line. First, yeah. Um, uh, so that, that his narrative. Oh, that's really spot on, Ken, yeah. So focused on the second coming that, he, that the resurrection even was almost, at first, not part of his main message. It's a hypothesis. Yeah, or at least unclear because it's a consequence that it's the risen one who's coming back. Wow, that's so helpful. I I think I've tend to read Paul the same way, probably because of your influence and then later confirmation and deepening on on my own, I suppose. But no, it would have been you first to help me see that. First with Acts and then seeing how it plays out in a different way, uh, but but not in a contradictory way in in Paul's letters and even the language. We and it seems to me that 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 pushes against any kind of cop out that would make this. So it's like you, we're almost in, introducing kind of three options of how to take this time that is run out or has been foreshortened. It could be taken as the time of the end. The time will be no more or whatever, or the kind of personal individual. Hey, time is short. You could die at any moment or a sort of the times, uh, the times of our own time, some, some, some crisis going on in in the now. And it seems to me that given the way Paul, I feel the default needs to be always on the first option and you need strong evidence to go with one of the others. Cause the default for Paul is always when he talks about the Kairos, the time he's talking about the parousia, the return of Christ and uh, the general resurrection, the last judgment, now, even the wording, we who are alive and remain, I mean, he talks as if he's part of the we who are alive and remain. This is why it's so troubling for him to realize that he may end up being a part of the other group. But like in Philippians, when he yeah. Thou, yeah. when he says, to live is Christ, to die is game, people quote that. I'm like, uh, thou doth protest too much. Can't you tell that Paul's trouble? That's why he has to say these things. Is he's? I mean, by the time he's writing Philippians, he's probably got some confidence about it. But I think it was a little bit troubling for him to realize I might end up a part of the the dead in Christ group. <laughs> yeah. I, don't um, think, I don't think it reads like he's expecting that in his earliest writings. No. And and that makes sense, right? I mean, what are they? Acts one six. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Yeah. Um, you know, they're they're thinking. Okay, I wasn't anticipating this in between time. I thought mm-hmm. I wasn't ex- wasn't expecting him to die, and man, I wasn't expecting him to rise from the dead. And are we back on for the kingdom? You know, and that's what I just love about Paul. For all the troubles, is is he has that priority? Like you say, he has the narrative flipped around. He has the priority placed. 
And yet he's writing these letters about how to like do regular ordinary life in light of that. So it's not just a totally, he doesn't ignore the personal individual, the social, the, but it's always under the horizon of this big end. And I I feel like we need to learn again and again, how to kind of be in that horizon, even though it seems hard to capture that. And yet it was hard to capture it. Then his, his own people didn't always sort of get it because we tend to always prioritize me and this life. That's what we know. I don't really go for this interpretation, but, um, even in college, I had a great um, idea of why some in Thessalonica were idle. Because if you, you know, you're not going to study for the final exam if you know Christ is coming, you know. Um, and so why why work? You know, Jesus is coming back. Uh, yeah. I, I don't necessarily go that way, but. It's not impossible, but. And so then this becomes, I mean, it's like you have the whole framework of eschatology and of then ethics. Cause you say this middle time was not obvious, but clearly it's emerging for Paul in his mind by now, at least, because he says right here in verse 29, you know, the time has been set very short and then he's, then he just does the rest and maybe we'll have to come back minutes. to this, but what's that? For the last 10 minutes. Right. Right. Because it's a neuter. So he seems to be talking about the rest of the time, right? The time that remains which he uses that phrase uh, at another point uh, earlier or later. I'll look for that in our second segment, but, but that rest still is real. And it, there, we have to figure out how to live in that rest, that, that, re- that rent remaining time. Right. So it's, he's not sort of completely ignoring it. He's just subordinating it. Yeah. yeah. That, to me, that helps. I mean, I, I, I forget the order that we're supposed to do these things in. I don't care. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the, uh, the context. Uh, so, I mean, there's some things that could be troubling about chapter seven in general, because he basically says, you know, marriage is a distraction. I mean, Wesley, uh, John Wesley, I think of John Wesley when I read this chapter, you know, who, yeah. um, what apparently told his wife, uh, I'm not going to let up on my ministry at all just because I'm married. Yeah. Uh, again, I don't know if that's an apocryphal story, but. Um, but it fits, it fits him and it fits this chapter, at least at first glance. So this chapter could be taken as a as a pretext for celibacy in in ministry uh, because there's so much to do and it's it's interesting that in in first Timothy five we get a completely different no 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 please go ahead and marry if you unless you're yeah you know, unless you're old you know remarry keep yourself occupied so so there's almost a, I mean you might argue that there's a superficial contradiction between first right. Timothy seven and first Timothy five which the delay, uh, an expanded understanding of the parousia or the second coming can at least potentially account for the difference. In yeah. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul expects Jesus to come back very soon. In 1 Timothy 5, well, maybe not so soon. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, might as well not marry because there's work to be done. 1 Timothy 5, there's plenty of time. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's uh, let's take a quick break and come back and explore some of those issues. Hey, John here. I just wanted to share a little bit about some of the bonus content that will be available to you if you choose to become a patron saint of the Fresh Text podcast. As you know, we are 
launching a Patreon account for Fresh Text here in the third year of the show, uh, seeking to just get a little financial support for some of the overhead as well as for uh, especially Todd and the, the editorial work that he does behind the scenes that he's been doing for free for two years here now. And honestly, I'd like to see him get paid for some of this work that he does. So uh, some of the extra content that we've been uh, dreaming up, if, if you come in at the, the, the $3 level of Simon the Fisherman, in addition to community access, you'll get a monthly bonus episode. Now, the, the format of that's going to vary month to month. Uh, some of it's going to be generated by the community. Uh, if there's, you know, some weeks, it'll just be like a mailbag, a bunch of Q and a and answering some questions that are being asked. We have some crazy ideas. I mean, uh, Brandon Hancock and I are cooking on, cooking up a, uh, an episode talking about some films. So we might do some, some strange topics, uh, that aren't just usually going through the lectionary texts and things like that. So you'll get some special content that way. If you come in at the, the $5 level, uh, the Paul, the 10, maker level in addition to the community access and the monthly uh, bonus episode you're also going to have a weekly special episode this will just be a short episode just me leading through a sort of meditation on scripture so those will come out towards the end of each week so that's a extra content that will be available just to you uh, but right there in your feed um, if you come in at the the ten dollar level, that's we've named the Joseph of Arimathea level. In addition to that, a monthly bonus episode and weekly special episode, you'll be eligible to to join an exclusive live Q and A. So we'll actually do a sort of live time uh, with me and perhaps some guests as well. Uh, we'll we'll uh, see what you desire. Uh, again, we'll lean on the community to 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 decide uh, what what you actually would like there too, as well as a patron shout out. We'll give your name a quick shout out on the show. And uh, for the the crazy ones out there who want to go at the Queen of Sheba level, they'll get all of that, uh, plus a VIP experience that's TBD, still to be invented based on what you would like. So what is it that you would would like to have? Would it be a private conversation with me or one of our guests? Uh, something like that. Uh, we'll see what that is. It'll be a little bit uh, based on your own interest. So as you can see, this is a new thing, the new Patreon experience. And the core of it really is the community and a lot of the, the shape of the the bonus content will somewhat emerge through the influence of what the community uh, is looking for. So that's a little picture of what we're doing. Uh, so most of all, just don't forget to strongly consider to join the Fresh Text community at patreon.com slash fresh text. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my uh, relatively frequent guest, Ken Shank, always glad to have him back on the show. And we're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 29 through 31 in its larger context, of course, the whole book and Paul's letters, but particularly even chapter 7 um, has a lot of oddities in it. I do wonder actually if the Revised Common Lectionary is also just kind of playing it safe by pulling out a kind of more uh, general perspective, you know, would you say a more, what universal Universal text or yeah, more easily seen as universal. Although ironically, I, I find the, I find the ethical advice of this chapter, like just sort of like run of the mill troubling, like all of the Bible, uh, like to me, like this is actually the most troubling thing in the whole yeah. to me is like to actually take seriously, because I don't think precisely because verse 29 is so universal is why it's so troubling. 
I think we are, like you called it orthodox earlier, I think we are in some ways bound by the gospel to regard the times that we're in, no matter how long they go on, as merely the rest. The little bonus extra time after time already basically ended. I mean, I, you know me, I'm, to me, the resurrection is the center of everything theologically, and I, and I think that's faithful to the New Testament in all the various ways in which they talk about it. And it's Christ's resurrection that's at the center of that. In some ways, that's the eschaton. That's, that's what I like to call his first second coming because he left, he died, and he came back from dead. Sure. Uh, that's his first second coming. And then we have his final second coming. And then we have all his little second comings in the middle of, of his different ways of being present, like in the Eucharist in chapter 11. And so we are in that little intermediate time. And the intermediateness of this time, I think, is uncontestable. We, we, we actually, uncontestable is the wrong word. Anything's contestable if you feel like contesting it. Uh, but that's, uh, that's core. That's gospel core, in my view. Um, the, the, the viewing time this way, that, this, that the time we're in is simply the rest the the loipon the right. the remnant That's right yeah and you know however long it goes and we should be troubled that it's gone on a while because if we're not a little troubled by the quote delay of the coming of Christ then do we really believe in it right i think it should be a little troubling so like i say I, all the stuff about sex and the rest of the book is just run of the mill troubling, you know, like Leviticus or, or the but, Sermon on the Mount or anything else I have a hard time understanding or living up to in the Bible. I mean, would it be helpful <laughs> to, to take a quick tour through chapter seven? Please. I think that would be awesome. I think it'd be great. So, so chapter seven is the beginning of questions that they have sent him in a letter. So they've sent him a letter mm. and he says, now regarding the things you wrote. And so we begin to see one after the other in the last chapters of first Corinthians Paul's responses to questions that they've asked him in their letter. And the first one seems to be, again, this might be debated and it's, it's translated in various ways, but I take it to mean, should married couples have sex, which is a bizarre question to us, but basically he says they should. And it's not the lofty Ephesians view of marriage. It's the have sex so that you don't get tempted to get it somewhere. You shouldn't get it. I mean, (laughs) it's not, it's, 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 and he basically says now, if you're a widow and you can control yourself, uh, stay unmarried. Uh, that, and he seems to present remaining single as the option, but he says not everybody has that gift. You know, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, of course, when yeah. I grew up on the King James, it, it didn't have with passion. So better to marry than, than to burn, to burn hell is how I took it. Yeah. But um, And it may be a little bit of a double. No, I don't know. <laughs> so he does he make makes- reference to fire in chapter uh, what? Uh, Six, right? Six. Uh, yeah. Or is it four? Um, oh, the yeah. stubble that'll get burned. So I, I, there may be a there may be a little bit of an intended little ah. double entendre there. Maybe I don't know. Go ahead. Go ahead. Take us but on the tour. Basic, Sorry to interrupt. Basic uh, basic point in the chapter is uh, the time is short, which is the passage we're looking at, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's not going to get any better. So I mean, he doesn't. Uh, I mean, I don't want to call him a premillennialist, but but he basically does seem to expect things to be pretty difficult uh, between where he's at then and when the Lord returns, uh, which he he thinks will happen in his lifetime. I think at this point of his ministry, at this point in his life, yeah. And and so he basically says, so like in the passage we we we're looking at, I take rejoicing to be a reference to marriage. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask you that. And weeping it seems a, out of context, you know, and weeping a reference to widow being a widow. Uh, or okay. Widow. Uh, again, maybe I'm wrong, but in the context of the chapter, you know, the ones who have a wife, 
pretty soon it's going to be like you don't. By the way, that doesn't mean you won't recognize your spouse in heaven. I mean, I don't know where that came from. Um, yeah, I, I always took it to be that this no longer is the defining feature of your identity, right? Uh, because in fact, it never was. That's the thing. That's that's sure. the that's the theological genius here is because this is not the thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I assume that you'll be great friends with your spouse in heaven. But, <laughs> Especially, but, I remember when we were talking about this, about the passage in, in uh, the there will be neither marrying nor yeah. giving in marriage in, in, in the 12. synoptics. When my wife and I were first engaged at one point, she was like, yeah, that always kind of like bumps me out, like a, that we can't. And I don't, I probably said something nerdy, but she said something like, one of us said like, well, maybe we can just be special friends, you know? <laughs> 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 of course, then the years go by and you, and you start and, and, and part of a sign of maturity. Well, there's an immature and an, a mature version of this, but as you get older in your marriage, you say like, so who do you think you'd marry if I died? You know, like you just, you're more like, it's totally comfortable with the fact that that's life, right? Like, who do you think's cute? You know, like, I mean, you just can, that's part of uh, the bond, the bond gets strong and you don't, you're not as, you know, <laughs> intimidated sure. by that kind of thought, but I'm sure you've been around couples that are like second marriage couples, they've their their first spouse, maybe even their second spouse has died. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've remarried. I mean, and there's different ways that they deal with it, right? Some you kind of try to set it, pretend it never happened. You get rid of all that stuff, and others you have pictures up of the yeah. previous spouse. I've seen both in my family yeah. and friends. I've certainly known those. You know, they just talk very freely about their former. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's but, wild. But so, so was Paul a widower? What's that? Was, was Paul a widower? Was Paul, you know, sorry to bring that up. You, you're doing the tour. I'm like that guy when you take, when you go on a tour, he keeps asking questions that distract the, well, the this is the, the chapter. This is the chapter yeah. that um, most inspires the idea that Paul might've been married, you know, uh, but, but, you know, if, if now here's what I say, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. I mean, there's some have, have thought, okay, Paul marries as a young Pharisee, young promising Pharisee, you know, maybe marries the, the daughter of some really important Pharisee, and then he becomes a yeah. Christian. He says, "I'm out of here," and, you know. So she goes home to to family, and and they so live Gamaliel's somewhere. cousin or whatever. But uh, I mean, anyway, wow, it's a who knows? Not impossible, that's for sure. Well, the argument, um, the other argument that's made is from Acts, where where he says he cast his lot with those who wanted to stone Stephen. Well, if he's a voting member of the Sanhedrin. He has to be married, but I, I always took that figuratively myself. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's pretty tricky because he's also specified as a young man there. Yeah, which is also interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't think you can build too much off a. Of, I don't think you can build too much of a, uh, semantic mountain out of that phrase. But it's all in the end. Speculative. It's possible. It's possible, though. I mean, it's definitely not. Um, it, it should not be assumed that he was a lifelong celibate just because he indicates he's now a celibate. Um, yeah, I mean, I, he could I, even I, have been a John Wesley type who still was yeah, in some sense married and maybe even visited that family when he would go back to Jerusalem. And so maybe that's why he talks about like, Oh, going back to Jerusalem's the death of me. Right. Maybe he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I because I wish everybody was as I am, which leads me to believe that he's not. Yeah. Not married at the time or not not um connect although he although he has sympathy with 
as is often the case when he quotes the Corinthians, they're not just dead wrong. They're, they're kind of slightly twisted applications of his teaching, right? Or variants of other teaching that would. So the notion of it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman or with a wife, Gune could be my wife, as you said. I mean, that quote that's seeming to be passing around and he's responding to, it's not the first quote he's responding to, although it's the first that he says comes from a letter. I mean, it wouldn't take a whole chapter if he's like, well, that's stupid, right? It's like, well, there's an element of truth there, right? In some sense. Uh, Most surprisingly uh, tactful. Yeah. And it's, I don't know if it's just tact. I think he has partial agreement with the notion of, because he may have actually said this in private to somebody and then it got turned into a, like a public teaching. He's like, well, no, no, no. That's not like, that's not the official teaching. But yeah, the highest life is the celibate life, even for the married. He might actually believe that. Again, these are troubling thoughts if you have a kind of hermeneutic where it's like, well, if Paul thought it, then it's gospel. I I don't read the Bible that way. You don't read the Bible. I learned from you how to not read the Bible that way. Um, (laughs) So believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture just for the Yeah. And precisely because I believe (laughs) in inspiration and inerrancy of scripture, I regard the divine authorship as definitive. And regard this, the, the single voice of scripture that is not on the surface as that which the, the spirit of between and among the letters between first Timothy five and first Corinthians seven, that's where the, the spirit of God is speaking is in that tension between those, right? Not in the one or the other, and then finding a way to cope with the fact that one doesn't correspond to the other by interpreting it away. Right. Like that's just not, so it's because I believe in the inspiration of scripture. I don't think you just think, Oh, one text just tells you exactly how to live. Right. They all they're speaking with and to each other. And we hear a symphony in that apparent cacophony. Right. I don't know that. I don't know if that fits your way of putting it, but. Well, I mean, I know you were just covering your butt there as you are want to do. And I, and I follow up. I no, Yeah. But let's, let's really say what we think here, Ken. It's always better audio than, than in print, right? It's harder to. Well, I, I, for me, um, and here we get, begin to push toward the hermeneutics. Um, yeah, it is, it is, for me, it's important to, to recognize that Paul's writings are situational and situational is not just a situation, but also the cultural uh, Mm -hmm. context. And so he's writing at a point in time and um, I mean, as you as you put it, we have to triangulate between this passage and First Timothy five. You know, for example, First Timothy five says some things that that are eyebrow raising to me right. as well for different reasons. Also problematic in a different you know, where, direction. Where mm-hmm. he basically says, you know, women can't. You know, they, they're not. They're busybodies. You know, you need to give something for that woman to do, or else she's going to get into trouble. Yeah, which is the First not- Timothy picture is much more patriarchal and even reactionary. It feels. And you some you lose some of the radical, like your primary identity is not who you're married to, which is really liberating in First Corinthians 7. But then it also has this kind of troubling uh, sexual ethic, you know? So, you know, they're, they're both troubling in two different, very different ways, right? Um, so that idea that you, you presented of, of uh, the whole counsel of God or finding, finding the voice of God among the voices, among mm-hmm. the situations, among the, among the choir – um, I think is a helpful, a helpful hermeneutic. Yeah. Paul's um, to say that the text is inspired is precisely to say that Paul himself is not right. The text is Paul is not God. Paul is not the Holy spirit. He's a bearer of the word. He is not the word itself. And so what's even the in text, the bubble above his yeah. head is not the same as the text. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to get at. Exactly. 
Yeah. Although I love talking about what's in the bubble inside, uh, inside his head. I think actually once you view it that way, it actually frees you to speculate. Okay. Here's the range of possible things that might be in his head, which is not the for the sort of last word on how to live this out. Um, did it, we, this has been an awesome conversation. I've been having a blast. Did I cut off the tour or had we hit all the, the, the highlights or were there a couple more moves that you wanted to mention before we turn to, to preaching I, possibilities? We, we'd mostly covered it. I mean, basically he says, if you're, if you're married, don't, don't get divorced. Are you divorced? Don't get married. Although I'll, I'm going to discipline myself I, there's lots of fun rabbit trails. Uh, yeah, really interesting. There's a one point where he, you know, what is he talking about some of your engaged to, or is he talking about right? Since the daughter? term divorce would cover that. Um, oh, and it could be because the agent of marriage is the father in this yeah. world. Right. Yeah. Um, Just like but, the marrying and giving marriage in, in synoptics is referring to the husbands and fathers and husbands making a deal The the woman is being, is the passive object in, in, in that arrangement. Yep. Um, a, you see a remnant of this. And today in weddings where they say, who gives this, right. uh, who gives this woman to be married? That's a remnant of this way of thinking this, this notion that this is a deal struck between men. So there's um, a, there's a hierarchy of oughts. Uh, uh, so the, the highest ought is, are you married? Don't get a divorce. That's the highest ought. Uh, okay. He says, if, if Which some might've thought was a faithful act, perhaps, especially if he himself had a reputation as having been right. Uh, married and now kind of alienated, they might've been thinking, oh, we should get divorced and be single because that's the highest life. Or even using it as an excuse. You know? Ah, yeah, that's oh, right. That's more no, likely. My spouse, you know. So walk, walk us through that hierarchy of odds. I think that's going to be a really helpful summary of the, ch- of the chapter. I think so the, the top one would be, if you're married, don't get divorced, don't stay get married. Divorced. If you're, uh, if you're a widow, Ideal not to get married. If you do, it's okay. If you're a virgin, ideal not to get married. If you do, it's okay. There's an ought, I think, maybe under divorce. He says, are you divorced? Don't seek a wife. But then he says, but if you do, you've not sinned, which is very interesting Mm. because it's almost like there's a double standard. He, He says, if you're a man who's divorced, don't seek a wife. If you do, it's not a sin. But he tells a wife, seems to tell the wife not to. To do that. Yeah, but and um, that that double standard runs both directions, as all sexual ethics built on a binary do, right? Because on the one hand, that's uh, giving more romantic freedom for men. On the other hand, it's built on. I think it seems to hint, especially the burn language and stuff, that there's some there's some assumption that again in that world where marriage is operating between as, as mostly a deal between men, the notion that you're free to not have to be married to be a full standing citizen in the Christian community is also liberating. So there's something liberating while at the same time, something oppressive built into that, as is often the case, I think with Paul, usually Paul is like a lot of his advice to slaves is very oppressive, but also very liberating in context. And it's kind of learning to see both sides of that coin, I think is helpful, but maybe that's a cop out and a coping strategy, which we're all, uh, no, I think want I think, to do, <laughs> I think, you know, when we talk about preaching, I think, um, one of the definite takeaways is it's not wrong to not be married or you're not yeah. inferior to not be married. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, it's held up as, as an ideal that's worth 
uh, celebrating and affirming and making, making an option. I mean, you know, you think of like, is there a kind of fetishizing of virginity and a, a kind of possibly Manichaean sexual ethic built into the history of like nuns and convents? Yeah, of course. On the other hand, in the history of Christianity, unmarried women have a lot of power and they have that power because they have not been yoked to men as their only way to have a public life. I mean, in, in for most of Christian history, the women who had the, mo- the greatest impact in public life were unmarried women, right? That's what gave them a sort of independent to be the abbess of a monastery is to have bishop-like power in the Middle Ages, you know? So it, there, there's always a double-sided coin. And I, this is not to defend the more troubling applications of texts like this. It's more just to say, it's complicated. I'm kind of doing the thing on Facebook. Relationship status, complicated. What's my relationship status to First Corinthians 7? It's complicated. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's not a simple, we should live like this. Exactly. This is a blueprint for life. I wouldn't, there I are married. Married, but I, can, I also can't go, this is just backwards and we should ignore it. I, I think there's a complex legacy here to be, to be attended to. There, there are married prophetesses in, in scripture, Deborah Holda, but it, it's not lost on me that Philip's four daughters are virgins. And that probably did give them a certain kind of, of authority that would have been more complicated if they'd have been married. Yeah. And my objection is to a fetishizing of virginity as, you know, the sole form of purity for women that, that itself is built on a patriarchal ideal of, of the kind of wife you're looking for, for your son. But it's precisely this passage that disrupts, even though there is a kind of hierarchy, as you say, at the same time, like verse 17, which I think is going to be linked, I think in an important way to our focus passage, 29 to 31, to say that to each one, you know, to live in the station, the the calling into which you were called, right? This kind of notion, oh, it's a 24 actually is more to the point in whatever, uh, and what's the word, uh, what's it called each. Yeah. To each one in the calling brothers remain or abide with God. I mean, this kind of notion that however you came to faith, that station of life can be transformed and reformed yeah. to glorify God. That that fits the the great principle in in First Corinthians 10, right? Whatever you do, do it under the glory of God. Yep. I, I think in many ways, though there's a hierarchy here, I agree with that. And I don't want to contest that. It's the, not a big hierarchy. Yeah, no. Well, I think it's that the the eschatology of our focus text, 29 to 31, has this kind of leveling effect. That's why I don't want to ever let go of this and just say, ah, Jesus didn't come back right away. So let's just return to kind of an Old Testament way of seeing things, right? That That's a common, <laughs> you know, like this kind of radical notion, I shouldn't say Old Testament, but you know what I mean? Sometimes people will say, oh, Galatians 3.28 doesn't apply to the Christian community because we're still in the world of creation. So we look at Genesis 1 and 2, and that's how we know how to run a family. And it's like, that's pretty much the opposite of how Paul's thinking here, right? Paul's thinking, yeah, everything has kind of been relativized in the fact that we're just in the leftover time right now. The form of this world is passing. Yes. But within that form, we still have to figure out how to live. So here's some advice, yeah. right? And I think that framework is just powerful. And and I think remains normative for us. I think that's the heart, that's the kernel of what needs to be planted in us now is this way of seeing things that even though there's specific, that there are ideals that he lifts up, those ideals are not the norm 
as it were. The norm is the time that it is. We are in the remaining time. So how, what's the best way to be faithful when we're in the remaining time? Um, and the best way he says to be faithful is to be faithful to the, to the condition of your life. Uh, when you came to faith, be faithful to that. Don't, don't, don't let, don't use the gospel as an excuse to get off the hook of the vows you've already taken. Um, very practical. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can weirdly be more practical when you're more radical. That's what I love about Paul. You know, we often think those are opposites, but when you're really radical, you know, that in some sense, everything's a compromise because every, everything that happens in under the conditions of the form of this world's a compromise. So it's all compromise. So then let's be discerning which compromises are more faithful than the others, right? That's how I would take it. I don't, does that resonate with your read of Paul or am I creating a sort of Bardian fever dream about Paul? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this, this, I love this chapter. It is so, Me too. <laughs> um, it's kind of like um, you shouldn't get divorced. If your spouse leaves, yeah, let him go. Um, <laughs> it's a great, uh, you know, it's pastoring, have, man. This is what pastoring work is like. Don't, don't have sex before marriage. Oh, you already did. Oh, well, get married. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's, just very, very practical. You know, your, your, your spouse died, you know, can you, can you make it, you know, alone? No. Okay. Yeah. No, Paul, the pastor. Hey, well, let's take a quick break. And speaking of pastor, let's talk about how we might preach a text like this. <laughs> And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with our guest, Ken Shank, and we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 through 31 in the context of the whole chapter, but that's kind of our focus text. Uh, let's explore some sermon starters. Uh, I've got some ideas I might pitch. What comes to your mind, though? Well, I mean, there are a couple of verses we haven't mentioned yet or haven't talked about yet. So so maybe start with the sermons there. The one who buys as though not possessing, uh, the one oh. using the world as though not using it. It, it implies a certain, um, uh, certainly puts our possessions in their place. Um, yeah. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a real materialistic person. Books, I suppose books are mm-hmm. my... Um, materialism um you know the the idea of of liquidating my library when i retire um i'm not looking forward to that That, that'd probably be the worst part of retirement for me um the sense that i've got to get rid of how many thousands of books i have so you might paraphrase it you know the one who has books as one who has none you know or whatever whatever your possession does that mean Mm -hmm. whatever your possession of choice is using the world i think is interesting paul seems to use uh, think of the world as something that, you know, it's a, it's a tool, uh, which is interesting. It, it implies to me that he's, he's neither uh, too heavenly minded for that. He's no earthly good, but it also implies a certain uh, practical, you know, he, and he, the whole chapter is practical. The whole chapter is, is maybe about using the world. And I'm, uh, I don't know what ideas you have, but it seems to me there, there could be a really rich part of yeah. the chapter about using the world. Um, we as Christians huh. use the world. Um, the world doesn't use us. Um, the oh, that's world really good. But um, yeah, there's two great uses of that term. Oh, heck, this word use is really important in Western Christianity. Historically, I'm going to mention three really fast. These wouldn't make it into a sermon. Well, you could, 
listener, dear listener, you could snoop around for this on the internet. You might find a great juicy quote. That'd be as far as you'd go. You don't need to do a whole history lesson in a sermon, but Augustine in his famous on Christian doctrine or on Christian teaching book makes a distinction between using and enjoying or employing, making use of using can sound. That's a tricky word. I'm careful with it because, oh, you're using me. You have to be careful about that, but you make use of or employ versus enjoy and employ and enjoy rhyme. So that's better. Right. Um, And he says, all created things are to be employed and only God strictly speaking can be enjoyed. But we enjoy God, but God cannot be enjoyed directly um, in this life, he would say. I would say in period. Uh, even in the next life, it will be mediated through the flesh of the risen Christ. And so there's always a creaturely medium in a relationship with God. But that's the difference between me and Augustine we don't have to get into right now. But all created things, because evil is privation, it's not a thing. It's a misuse of the good that God has made. All created things in principle can and ought to be used for our enjoyment of God, right? That's just brilliant. I think that's a deep insight. And and you can see the connection to this text. I mean, it's not, I don't think he just made that up. I think he, that is a Pauline insight, though it's developed in a very platonic way as Augustine does. But And then the, the Franciscans, right? The followers of St. Francis became, they were living a life of poverty. And of course, the Benedictines were individually poor, but the the house had a lot of possessions. And part of their reform movement was to say, no, we think the monastery should also be poor. We should have a poor life together to be in solidarity with the poor and to be on the road preaching rather than hold up in houses out in the woods, but out in the cities. And But they had to have stuff, right? Books and <laughs> and clothes, and right? And so they came up with this little distinction between own and use. And you can't own a thing but you can use it. Um, so, of course, that becomes a sophistic uh, distinction over time. But you can see that here in this passage, right? Yeah, okay, you do kind of possess things. You buy stuff. and maybe But don't treat it like a possession. Treat it like a, like a thing that you've borrowed to make use of for a season. That, that's how to think of it. And you would only, that only seems like a game you're playing with yourself if you don't take seriously verse 29, that we really are just in the last little time. We're just in the little overtime. The buzzer already went and it's tied. And so we're going to, we're going into overtime, but like it's, it's, it's a, uh, what's it called when you're overtime and the first point wins the game? What's that called? Uh, sudden death. Yeah. Yeah. We're in, we're in, we're in sudden death overtime. And so it could be wrapped up at any moment. And it turns out it's going on really long, longer than the game that we play right uh that's i don't know that's a little image to try to capture 29 so if you're thinking that way then this is not just a little game as if it's you really aren't possessing these things that's the more real reality and i think it's easy if we get the narrative backwards like you talked about earlier we'll think that well obviously i do possess it but the 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 principle of private property that's that's the definitive thing and oh but i'm also spiritual about it and no well these things don't really define me i think paul would flip that on its head like yeah actually the possession is the myth uh <laughs> am i into the world and naked shall i depart yep 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 you know it's interesting think- uh in the context of this chapter he again he's talking about marriage and sex uh, and yeah. things, uh, that's there's a, something deeply subversive there because I think we divinize, yes. we almost divinize sex, yes, um, and and marriage even in in some Christian circles. Um, we, the well, I think we've overcorrected from a kind of fear of sex into kind of a 
you know, sex is this evil thing, except when you're married, and then it's the best thing ever. It's everything that matters, you know, and it's like, it is confusing. <laughs> and, and Paul treats it as something to be used. Um, it seems to me, or you see why I don't want to use that verb used. Or to be, or, yeah. Yeah. I hope you know what I'm saying. People. I know I've been talking to our listeners to say, yeah. you're not doing anything wrong, but I think there is a finding the better word for the sermon would be helpful for our listeners that would still capture. Maybe we look at the original to, to see it. Verse 31. Uh, um, to, to utilize, to, to employ. I mean, you, you've already given good, good synonyms. Would those all work? I, I'm thinking of the Latin uses, so I, I don't really oh, right. wasn't sure if those work for the Greek here. Where, where's the word? Cro, cro, cro men, it's, is it cro-menoi in verse 31? Cro, cro-omai, yeah. Cro-omai, man, I do not know that word. Well, it's um, not a high frequency, but um, um, the, the ESV has deal with the world, having dealings with the world. And then it's not, it's kata cro-menoi. There, this added kata that threw me off in 31 as those make who do not have of. what's that make full use of that's what that would be. Well, oh, that's what, that's what at least the default my dictionary says here, which actually you have in the previous sentence, you have the added, the kata there as well. The kata, the kat ekontes, which is having, but it's a more kind of possessing. Uh, yeah. Those is not possessing. So you have it, but you don't possess it. You don't cling to it. Mm-hmm. I think of Jesus in Philippians too, right? He did not consider quality with God something to be to be grasped, to be clung to. I mean, the, the points are all right here. I mean, I hate to be so Puritan, old school sermon here, but it's like you have your big idea, verse 29, 29a, right? That big happen. perspective. And then the application for how to live in light of that. And it's relationships would be 29 B through 30 a right with three sub points of, you know, those who are married, those who are getting married and those who have, who have lost, right. Or I got it in the wrong order. Right. But you, you mentioned that 30 a is probably also in the marriage sphere and there you could go and do some, yeah. And you could grab, well, you could grab some stuff from earlier in the chapter to kind of, so relationships would be the first point application. The second would be uh, possessions, right? And the third, it'd be interesting to think what the world is code for here, right? This isn't, you know, how does he, what does he mean? Is he talking about your job, your public life? Is that is that word have a kind of public sort of sense to it? Politics would fit in that, Yeah, the, right? the connotations... Um... Uh, you you alluded to this earlier when you talked about um, uh, groups that really focus on no 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 this is the way God made creation you know God made so uh, some would say God made men and women to have certain roles and that's yes you know, that's what we have to do or God made um, hierarchies in certain ways there always has to be certain kind of hierarchy or, or um, those are forms of this world arguably yep. uh, that are passing away. And this is this is what I've always said with regard to the question of women in ministry and leadership. You know, if we can make the world more like the kingdom of God now, why would we wait? And I think Paul, in a sense, is saying that. I mean, the form of this world is passing away. Um, if we can, li- if we can begin to import the eternal into the the temporal, let's let's go ahead and get going. And then just recognize it's always going to be there's going to be pragmatic compromises made in that endeavor. I think would be the key. 
that we do that heaven trajectory, but we recognize it's always a trajectory. We're not going to establish heaven on earth either because that has its own abusive potential because that's exactly what he's correcting is the thought that you could be like, oh, well, Jesus is coming back. So all this stuff doesn't matter at all. So he he's right. always navigating a kind of Tension. recognition that the norm is the thing is the world to come, but the reality we live with is this world. And so to find ways to be faithful in the midst of that. So the world, okay, that would include, so that's because the world, I wasn't sure how Paul uses cosmos as a term, you know, I mean, it has this highly polemical sense in, in John, but I think in, in Paul's writings, it might have a little different sense. I wasn't sure if it, of course, the word, the word in the word translated often in Latin in the West is, is is seculum. The word secular comes from, from worldly time, you know? In the Middle Ages, you'd have a secular priest, which sounds confusing to us, right? But that means not a priest in a monastery, but a priest in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that captures the sense here or not, or if I'm reading something into it. So please correct me when I do well, that. No, I mean, I'm, I'm hypothesizing like you. I'm going from the chapter. You know, what has he been talking about in the chapter? Yeah. He's been talking about the forms of the world. Mary, yeah. The form of the world. But. Yeah, it's just, I'm getting a, a sense that, as often happens is Paul, I just had Bart Bruler on for the first time last episode, and he pointed out how Paul will be going on about very, you know, deep, ordinary things and engaging in these rhetorical battles. And then, and then there'll be these little moments that peek out where you get the underlying rationale for everything he's been saying. And I thought that was a very helpful trick of Pauline uh, exegesis to keep that in mind. And that would be the, having insulted the lectionary for, for, for evading the difficulties of this chapter, I will now compliment the lectionary and say, this may be one of those moments in this chapter where you're kind of peeking out the, the underlying rationale. And when you're, when you see those moments, that's when I think we're in good standing to think about how this would apply to other topics beyond what he's right. Cause he's even hinting at that here. Cause he's saying, you know, the reference to possessing, I mean, unless that is itself a kind of, no, I mean, you know, buying, you know, you know, I don't think you bought, I know they would talk about possessing uh, and having authority over a spouse. I don't know if they would use, yeah. you wouldn't use agorazontes. You wouldn't use agora to talk about marriage, right? Man, I, I hope not, but I mean, you, could, I hope not either. You could spin out a scenario where a father, you know, is, is yeah, maybe they use the term, you know, purchasing. It is the word for silver, right? Just like exchanging. Um, Possessing a wife, possessing uh, a spouse. It's possible, but it seems that although he knows he, one of the rationales for for his singleness is his economic independence, right? I mean, it's not just about sexual purity or something like that, which actually I don't think he seems that concerned about. Interestingly, I, I don't think the purity thing is the obsession here. I think it's, uh, it's about, I think it's, yeah, and it's about freedom. And, you know, his, his freedom to, to travel and to the gospel and to not be a burden on the people that he serves is linked to his singleness. You know, if he's going to come to town with a wife and kids, well, then he needs to get paid, you know? And I mean, uh, Peter's, I would go, I would go preach for free if I wasn't then leaving my wife to watch my kids for two straight days and they got to eat while I'm gone. But if it was just me single, I'll just come and cause. And, you know, you just, uh, and when I was, when we were married, but didn't have kids, which of course the gap between being married and having children, that gap doesn't exist for most of human history. That's a kind of modern invention of, of birth control. 
there were those seven, eight years when we didn't have kids and my wife pastored one state. I pastored over in New Jersey and, and I practically functioned as a single man, as a pastor. And when I was in town, I, I didn't live in the town I was pastoring, but, but I was there, you know, twice a week. And when I was there, they just took care of me. Right. I ate all my meals with them and with different people at the church, you know, the old Italian ladies would have me over for sausages and past pasta. And, and, uh, and that was, you know, I just, I kind of lived at their uh, behest, you know, and there was a certain kind of freedom to engage in ministry in that, in that way. I, I see what Paul's kind of talking about. Right. Um, and I mean, I'm glad I wasn't actually single, but, uh, but anyway, you catch my, you catch my drift, right? The, the, so you'd got to buy, you got to buy stuff if you're setting up a family. So they're not totally disconnected. And it didn't work for Wesley. No, well, but he was, he was weird. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't think he, uh, yeah, I wouldn't lift him up as an example, but I, I just, I was trying to create three little fake points here, but I saw relationships in the first category possessions in 30 B and then 31 a introduces this concept of the world. And I, and I do agree that it would, that it's all kind of marriage and family is the association. I was just trying to think what the, what that third category is. Cause you can't have a sermon if it doesn't have three points. Right. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying to think what this, uh, what, what it means to have dealings with the world, the, the word use to use the world. I, I feel like I want to see if, if a sensitive point, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'd have to be real. I would really have to think about how to present it is somehow or another, a lot of American Christian culture, especially white Christian culture. Um, I don't know whether it's Kant's fault or who, but this sense of, of abs- <laughs> absolutism that, that, ah. that there must be no compromise that if a prince, so, I mean, to, to put it in in semi Kantian terms, if, the, if, if something is a principle, it is always a principle. Um, and there can be no exceptions to it, no matter what. Um, and somehow uh, a certain branch of America, and I think Francis Schaeffer probably has something to do with it, but but we have this sense that if something is right, it's always right. There can never be any exceptions. It, absolutism is, is what Christianity is all about. Paul doesn't know anything about, about that. Paul is incredibly practical. I mean, he, he has principles and he has exceptionless principles. But this this chapter is full of exceptions. It's like, don't get divorced. Well, okay, if your if your spouse departs, let him de- de- depart. Uh, it's best yeah. not to get remarried. But if you do, okay, you haven't sinned. Um, and it, don't have sex outside of marriage. But if you can't control yourself, get get married. It's best for a widow to stay single. But okay, if you have to get married, get married, and and so forth. It, but and so there's nothing of this absolutism. It's all about yeah. using, the, using the world. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Make use of the world. Yeah. I think I can't help, but I was thinking, I just flipped over there to see if any of the terms were used of the, the parable of the the, unrighteous uh, steward in chapter 16. Are you thinking of that? Just manager. Yeah. You know what? That passage is super weird and I've always had a hard time preaching on it. And I would actually be inclined to recommend to preachers who are, I mean, I love Paul. You love Paul. Not, We've already had some guests on. We're only a few, we're only, you know, we're less than two months into the new year. We've already had some guests on who are like, yeah, I don't really like Paul that much. Um, some people preach on Paul's really hard for some folks. And I, and I respect that and understand that I find other things hard. Um, I love Paul, uh, like him too much probably. 
I, sh- I should clarify. I don't think my sermons on Paul are good, but I like preparing them. You know, <laughs> I, I find them fascinating. Um, and for those who are struggling with how to start on a text like this, um, it may be helpful to to grab over to that parable because that parable in many ways um, there's, and that's actually a fun little trick with Paul is to kind of go find a parable, especially some of the Luke only parables often have a kind of Pauline flavor. If you pay attention, you know, the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple and one went home justified. And I mean, come on, like, it's like, it's like the whole Paul's doctrine of justification in narrative form. It's so great. Right. And, and it just occurred to me that that would be a great way to both redeem this passage for people who have a hard time preaching uh, on Paul because of just this, his genre, the style it gives you a narrative and vice versa. It's an opportunity to kind of redeem a really strange parable that, that we often don't know what to do with. Um, but that one's also framed apocalyptically. You know, I, I think that could be a nice trick and you could do that at the top of the sermon uh, or you could introduce it and in, you could do a kind of Lowry loop where you kind of problematize this story and then introduce it to kind of make sense of it. Or you could save it for the end as kind of the little narrative moment at the end. I feel like that'd be a fun sermon um, to really play these texts off each other. The other text I'd want to play off is the famous line, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with yeah. those who weep, which yeah. is almost the opposite of what he's saying here. Although it's not because that's talking about others. If another person is rejoicing, rejoice with them. Yeah. Right. I mean, I feel like Adam, this is, you're not going to like me bringing this up. You don't have to respond to it, but the, the big, a big, tension point in churches right now is if you have a traditional view of marriage, uh, do you go to a friend or family members, um, same sex wedding? Right. And, you know, 30 to me implies that you could say for yourself, this is not something that I can condone, but that passage from, uh, is that second Corinthians rejoice with those who rejoice Romans 12, maybe. Oh, it's in Romans to kind of say, um, well, but I can celebrate those who are experiencing things according to the schema of this world. Um, but I know the scheme of this world is passing away. And that's true of my own marriage that I'm inclined to want to say is somehow holy and and honoring of God, right? So it's not saying, again, you know, sorry to bring up a controversial issue right at the end of the the, the podcast 12, here, 15. but 12.15, there it is, to kind of, but just to say that first and foremost, the big principle that is un- non-negotiable is that this is the last time. This is the remaining time, right? That the schema of this world is passing away. And then within that framework, there are judgment calls about what is you know, more faithful and less faithful. So it's not like you have no morals at all, but it's to recognize that all those moral judgments are themselves in some ways, a compromise by definition, because it's living in the schema of this world, including even marriage, which is God's creation. Even that's part of the schema of this world that is passing away as God is redeeming and transforming the whole world into something very, very different. You know I don't know. I, you don't have to respond to that because I don't want to put you on the spot. Well, but. I, 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 just a, a side comment. Um, I participated in a C.S. Lewis uh, webinar. Uh, I've, never, I've never really been a uh, Lewis aficionado. Uh, one of the things I've been struck by, uh, and this is a, he gets this from Augustine, is that he is really wired to see whatever fragment of good there is in something, and and this yes. is some, this is something yeah. I, uh, our culture, our Christian culture doesn't do. 
our Christian culture focuses on the bad in something and then completely ostracizes or uh, excommunicates or basically if we find the bad in something, we use that as an excuse. I, maybe I'm overgeneralizing here, but it seems to me that a lot of times we use the bad. We do it all the time. Yeah. As, an, as an opportunity to completely dismiss it. Lewis's approach is, and and what really struck me in his surprise by joy, he's talking about some really unpleasant things about yeah. the boarding school he went to. And, mm-hmm. and, and he says, but you know what? That was about the only love uh, that hmm. those boys had or, and, and I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> this yeah. is really bad stuff here. Um, and, and maybe, and C.S. Lewis is not inspired, but, but it, it's really s- stuck with me uh, these last wow. couple of months that, that, and this is again, Augustine, that if bad, if evil is a twisting or corruption of the good, there's something and, to be good in everything, which is not moral relativism because moral relativism is to say, don't judge people. What they do in their privacy of their own home is, you know, what consenting adults do in private is none of our business. That is clearly not Paul. Paul could not write this chapter if he thought that. That's to say that right and wrong don't apply. And what Lewis is getting at is right and wrong always apply. And there's always something right and good hiding. Part of it is move away from right and wrong to good, better, best. There's something good here, even if it's not yet the best and something twisted. So again, uh, I think not, that's powerful. I, yeah, I don't, want to, I don't want to endorse Lewis or or uh, make take a position on this issue, but but um, I think Lewis would say, look, this marriage is not um, orthodox or this or not orthopraxic or whatever you want to. Say. This this marriage is not God's plan. Um, I think Lewis would say, but I think Lewis would go to the wedding because he would say, uh, I'm I'm here to celebrate what is good in this. Again, I'm not. I'm not endorsing that. Um, uh, I'm tracking you. I'm tracking but, you. But it is it well. Is, and there's. It's like there's a Pauline. There's a Platonic. There's a Platonic way of doing it, and there's a more Pauline way of doing it. And they're not mutually exclusive because they come out the same way. Because the the Pauline way to do it, it seems to be here is, well, this is all just the scheme of the world. The time is almost up. So it kind of. So there's the seeing the good in everything. There's also the power, the, the the liberating power of seeing the bad in everything, that everything, all our everyday stuff, all these practical concerns are rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? So why are you, you know, so yes, are there things there and on the Titanic, it's wrong to push, push a child out of the way to get on a boat in front of them, right? They're still right and wrong, sure. right? But, but, but the, the primary thing now, I know that's a little maybe too radical, but to recognize that a great transformation, a great transfiguration is coming. And when we have that in mind, we say, okay, we need to make tough decisions about how to be faithful. So we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. But as for our own rejoicing, we rejoice as those who don't rejoice because we don't, we aren't that invested in the schema of the world. And when we weep and mourn, we don't mourn as, as those who have no hope to use a quote from first Thessalonians, because we aren't attached to the schema of the world. And when we find ourselves caught in our own mourning, it's the classic difference between someone saying everything happens for a reason. When someone says that to you, it's cruel, right? When you come to that conclusion yourself, it's liberating, right? 
And that's the problem is you hear somebody say it and then you think, oh, that's a, that's a helpful thing to say to comfort someone. It's like, no, 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 no. It's comforting for them to say it. It's not comforting for you to say it to them. That's, I think, the way I would take the difference between the Romans rejoice with those who rejoice versus, but when it comes to our own moral choices, we rejoice, but not as those who do rejoice. Right. And it's about attachment. I think, I think there's an attachment theme here um, to not be so attached to the schema of this world. Yeah. Right. And being unattached doesn't mean you don't care, but you're freed by being unattached to make, uh, to make discerning wise choices about what is more or less faithful. And that's what you see Paul modeling for us here. This is a more faithful choice than that. But if you can't do that one, here's the more faithful choice in that, right? That, that hierarchy that you laid out, but the hierarchy is not the the, the paradigm. The paradigm is the eschatology. The hierarchy is the practical. Yes. Um, I don't know. Is any of that, is that making any sense to you or might, did I just go off on a. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm absolutely. I mean, we, these are proverbs, right? Um, and, yeah. And the key, the key is to know in what situation, to yep. use which proverb. Yep. Yep. I mean, you don't, Phronesis, right? when the Titanic's sailing fine, don't move that deck chair, you know, but when, when it's thinking, <laughs> you, can, you can move a deck chair if that's going to help you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I hope there's something here for our listeners to use. I'm sure it was at least interesting. It was interesting for me. And there's some sermon ideas here, some points possible, a big idea, the connection to some other texts. Um, so so have fun with that. I could see, I, sometimes I like doing problem sermons where I just kind of create a problem and that draws people into the exegesis. I feel like right out of the gate, I could start with verse 30a, the rejoicing is those who don't rejoice, uh, weeping is those who don't. And then put next to that, the Romans 12, verse five, rejoice with those who rejoice. Like that could be a fun, create a tension uh, that might draw people in. Now that's a more exegetical tension uh, that might not click with everybody's style of preaching, but. Your father, uh, your father used to tell me um, in terms of pedagogy that um, when you just introduce a concept in the abstract, you know, it just kind of can bounce off. But if you create a problem for which not create a problem, but if you show a problem for which somebody wants a solution, that's a teachable moment. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. Someone taught me the term disorienting dilemma. You want to create a disorienting dilemma in, uh, in teaching and in preaching. I think that's good. Yeah. Well, thanks so much uh, for giving uh, well over an hour of your time. The, I think this episode's over an hour and we have been on for almost two hours catching up in the breaks. Uh, none of that's recorded. No one will ever know. <laughs> solved all the world's problems. Uh, I don't know about that. Uh, thanks so much to Eric and Todd for their production work. I can't imagine doing this uh, without them. And uh, thanks uh, to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And thanks most of all to all you listeners out there. Uh, thanks for getting the word out about the show and for supporting the show. Uh, think about joining our Patreon if you get a chance to uh, just to support the show. Not for me. I don't. I don't see a cent to that. That's to go to pay for some overhead and to to compensate Todd and uh, for his time and the, the hard work he puts in behind the scenes for this show. So, um, yeah. With that said, we say have a good preach and a great, great. week. Great to be with you. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>